0: so do your power go out on saturday night
1: i don't think so um, you would know because all no- of your appliances no, were be beeping at you. Yeah, no, I didn't notice. We didn't have, our power was fine. Did so, yours?
0: Yes, and it did, oh. and it was right, like, around 830, uh-huh. right when the sun is starting to set, and I got really excited because uh-huh. we were settling into, a like, a boring night of it's 100 degrees outside, and so we're in the basement watching television. Right. Um, and then the power went out, and yeah. I got so excited. I, like, jumped up from the couch, and I went... Time to go to the bookshelf. And I went to my my TBR bookshelf Uh and um, I picked something out, like a book that I borrowed from a friend that I've been trying to read for a million years.
1: Yeah.
0: And I went and I sat down and the obviously there wasn't enough light in the basement because we uh, we had no no power. So then I went and sat outside, mm-hmm. and like the light was fading and it was beautiful and the temperature was perfect. But then the mosquitoes came out,
1: yep. So to go back you.
0: inside, and then I went to the front porch and I sat down and I got about a page out there, and then it was too dark to read. And so then I went searching for a flashlight, hoping that I could like you know lay on the couch and like prop the flashlight up on your shoulder like you did when you were at camp i was
1: gonna say you sound like the little kid in like the movie where they've like got to read the thing under the blanket you know oh yeah Yeah.
0: except for i went and i asked nick my fiance i was like hey where are the flashlights because i remember seeing a whole bunch of flashlights and he told me where in the basement so i went and i looked there's nothing and i went upstairs and i okay where are the flashlights and all i want to do is read this goddamn book right like all i want to do is read the book so I was really mm-hmm. excited. Everybody was saying like this was, you know, right around nine. They were saying that power would be out till eleven. Um and so I went downstairs and I looked again and there was not a flashlight to be found.
1: I mean, it sounds like you're just flat out not prepared for the worst.
0: Clearly. I mean, clearly
1: when the apocalypse hits, wh- what's your bunker situation looking like? It's not nearly it's not ready good. Enough. Yeah,
0: it's not good. And so like I can't have Nick come in and like look for it because he's out watering the the plants because we got new plants. Mm-hmm. So he's busy and I'm looking and I am just convinced that our flashlights have disappeared. Like I had brought a ghost into this house or something yeah. like an anti literacy ghost. Yeah. And
1: that was me. I'm the anti-literacy ghost.
0: (laughs) So then, you know, after about 30 minutes of frantic searching and like going from place to place as the sun is setting, trying to read this book, Mm -hmm. the lights come back on. And I was a little disappointed because I didn't like get to do the flashlight on the shoulder thing. But at the same time, it meant that I could indeed once again read the book and then Nick goes downstairs and he's like, well, no, we definitely had a flashlight and grabs the flashlight exactly where he said it was and brought it back up. (laughs) And it turns out, Eric, that in 2018, flashlights are not gigantic, you know, prop them up on your shoulder kind of flashlights anymore.
1: Not good enough. The flashlight has to be huge.
0: No, no, no. It was tiny. It was like an LED tiny thing. And so then I got really upset and I was very adamant that there was never indeed a flashlight in that spot. Um, And so then he went out to Ace Hardware at like 930 at night and bought a bunch of gigantic flashlights with lantern settings. So I can, in fact, when the power goes out, read.
1: Why don't you just go? go. Why don't you just turn to your favorite, uh, you know, quote unquote reading activity, which is uh, listening to things in your headphones?
0: Because my phone was about to die. And Um, I couldn't charge it. And you
1: were in an emergency I was in an emergency
0: situation. Like how many instances am I going to like not feel bad about reading a print book?
1: I'm just saying you, you know, you talk all this shit on the show about the print book and finally it comes time and look whose chickens came home to roost, huh? Yeah.
0: But then I, instead of watching the second season of Glow, once we got the internet back, (sighs) I did indeed read the book and I finished it yesterday And I am very pleased, and now I have a whole bunch of gigantic flashlights, and that is the most exciting part of my weekend.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Um, So, we should start the show, by which I mean I should say welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, as you've just heard, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura.
0: Hello, Laura. I am excited to be here, and I have flashlights. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we should start we should do like a little like light show or something sometime. you can get like those filters, you know,
0: I could um,
1: But uh, today is July 2nd. Uh, we were very excited to talk to you today uh, we have once again kind of a standard episode last week was a little shorter more abbreviated, but uh, we are back at it now So we are very excited uh, before we get to that though. How about the basic rundown?
0: Yeah, we are at the beginning of July So welcome uh, mm-hmm. the one of the muggiest months I think in Minnesota
1: I think July is the worst month in the calendar.
0: I think objectively you could be right. Yeah. I think August is a little bittersweet yeah. because you know, you're know you about to like head back into school season. But you know what? I work all year round, so it doesn't really yeah. matter. No, July can be objectively the worst. But right. anyway, it is not the worst for me this year because I'm going to be out of town next week. I'm going to be at a family reunion and north carolina so we are not going to have an episode next week so you have to really enjoy this one listen to it like seven times when want, you miss us
1: i'm gonna want dispatches from north carolina
0: well i've already planned it all the places i'm eating
1: are you gonna bring your flashlights uh. <laughs> you could be like the flashlight relative now <laughs> Oh, that's, that's I that's not think she's, about it. She's been like going through some stuff. Now she's like one of those flashlight people. It could be really good. I think that this this would be a good change for you.
0: Yeah. Well, this is my in-laws family. Even uh-huh. so... Even better. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah. I could be the flashlight person. Um, yeah. I was just going to be the one who like went to the biscuit restaurant like three times in one day. But sure. Yeah. Okay. I could also bring flashlights. Um, so we're going to be off next week. But never fear because... We have a whole host. We have 73 other episodes besides this one that you can listen to, not to mention all of our special episodes. So it's the beginning of month. We don't have any of those out for you yet. Um, But as soon as I get back and have um, the Internet and my flashlights around me like a bunch of sleeping kittens, Mm -hmm. um, we will upload all sorts of things, including the query show, the first pages show. Our um, third special show, which I think is probably going to be writing by reading this month. Um, We will also have Dungeons and Dragons, which I need to stop calling that because it's Call of Cthulhu. Yep. We'll have Call of Cthulhu ready for you.
1: That's going to be exciting, especially because um, we were nicely gifted by one of our listeners, uh, Matt Gamble. I believe his name is, according to Twitter. He mailed us a, or he purchased for us, a raccoon shirt.
0: The St. Saint right. Paul Saints raccoon shirt. Yes. Thanks, Matt.
1: You hit our other gift to announce that one. Um, we've really amassed a strange collection of things people have given us. It's mostly
0: just a raccoon shirt and, and a, a gong.
1: Well, I mean, that counts to okay, me. Okay, sure. Um, but, uh, no, the shirt is great. I'm going to wear it during the game because it seems appropriate. Um, it's a good uniform for the situation. So uh, thank you to Matt.
0: Okay, so let's get into it. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to funny raccoon shirts and gongs, um, a lot of our listeners give us something that is just as good, which are their thoughts and their questions. Um, And so we have created a episode this week where we are essentially going to be responding to two emails that we got over the past few days Mm -hmm. by two listeners because we think that they're really interesting and we think that they're worth talking about.
1: So the first email we got, um, and we'll hold off names for now. Um, but, um, it kind of gets at this idea about just kind of how like bleak things are in the news. Like the email kind of references, um, you know, like the world kind of sucks right now in a lot of ways. Um, and it sort of makes, this kind of pursuit all of us are in if you're listening or, you know, if you're in the industry or whatever, like it makes this kind of like, you know, this book pursuit, it can feel a little bit superfluous. And so what this this listener asks is about the moral role of fiction um, in either grappling with the real world or providing some sort of escape or anything. Um, Influencing
0: and, the world for the better.
1: Yeah, and just like basically what is the point of um, – what is the point of like writing fiction and what is the moral responsibility of the fiction writer in a time like this? And I personally, um, I think that's an interesting question because it's, you know, it gets back to something we talk about a lot, which is that all writing is, is political. Right. And I mean, even from there, you start to get into this idea that word kind of creeps up, um, you know, and the way they, they kind of frame it here is escapism versus activism in writing. Right. And it takes these two things and it pits them sort of on, on other sides of this divide where you're either directly addressing, um, you know, the issues of the day in some sort of, you know, book that really feels like torn from the headlines or whatever. Or you're writing a book that just has nothing to do with the world whatsoever. And it's meant as sort of a reprieve, right?
0: One or the other. I Yeah, I, I think... Um... There's a couple of things to consider here, but I don't think that a book does one or the other necessarily. Like, it's specifically fiction. Yeah. I think it's really difficult for one book to just be one thing or the other thing. Like, if you're... Like, if you think about the the most popular and fun books that people read, mm-hmm. like, take into, take into consideration... um a really popular magical children's book series, Harry Potter. I'm doing it. I'm doing oh, it. Oh
1: God, I'm off the show.
0: <laughs> so, Harry Potter, right? Like you think that that's just going to be good and great and fun, and then you hear people finding um, hope or finding moral lessons, or you yeah. have them finding, you know. A, a means of communication through that particular piece of fiction to deal with fascism and <laughs> you know and it's like that book i'm sure when j k rowling was writing it wasn't thinking oh good i need to k- teach the 14-year-olds how to be anti-fascist
1: oh she definitely wasn't but um it's you know for me with that kind of stuff um i mean i'm someone who gets kind of irritated with those comparisons but um, apart from that, I think you're right that it does kind of speak to this thing where even as people write, escape, you know, quote unquote, escapist literature, whether it's high fantasy or whether it's, you know, a story that is like simply about, you know, two people falling in love or you know, like whatever it is that feels kind of detached from worldly circumstance, um, that has a role. You know, like you and I were at a, you know, we, like many people in the book community and people beyond the book community at large, we were at a protest this weekend. And one of the things you know that I felt was like, you know that kind of stuff, it takes it takes energy, right? And one thing that I think that the book world can really do, and especially you know, you know writing, and it seems like maybe this author is concerned that, you know, at a time like this, some writing might be deemed more important than others. Yeah, you know like you know, because things have become so overtly severe, You know, we've reached a point where, well, maybe we don't have time for the, you know, the whimsical story anymore. Maybe we don't have time for the, you know, purely kind of divorced from reality story when all of us are kind of focusing on our immediate needs. And I would just say, like, I think it's almost more important to have that stuff in equal turn. Like, one thing, I mean, between, you know, this kind of divide between escapism versus, you know, activism and writing, um, it's, there's a lot of books out there and there's a lot of writers out there. You know what I mean? Not everyone has to write the same thing. Yeah. And And you you,
0: can't give out water when the well is dry. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, like one type of book or when somebody reads a book and views it as escapism and, you know, as a a tool to recharge, you know, that might help them go on and do activism the next day or an hour later.
1: Or even just, I mean... Even if it isn't, I mean, that's true. And even if it isn't that direct, like now more than ever, I think it is perfectly fine to like spend time doing things that are just like nice to yourself. You know what (laughs) I mean? And if that involves like reading something that, you know, gives you a moment of reprieve, then by extension, like writing that sort of thing is absolutely is worthwhile as well. I mean, we all have the things that, you know, get us through you know, moments that are difficult and they're not all like how-to manuals on how to do, you know, whatever it is or like grief handbooks or things like that. And I just, I don't know, like you and I um, talk a lot about just sort of the media climate into which a lot of like politics writing specifically is is published into. And, you know, we've talked about kind of the news book, right, where it feels like, you know, there's sort of this hysteria of the endless scroll through our feeds and all these things. Yeah. And, you know, there's these books like the Michael Wolff book or the James Comey book that just feel like they're like paper shallow, but they're designed to just kind of tap into this hysteria that's happening in a given moment and then disappear. But like by the time it's disappeared, it's sold a gazillion copies. You know what yeah. I mean? It's so like and that feels much less good to me than like a story that feels escapist. You know what I mean? And obviously, you know that's a nonfiction versus fiction divide. But even on the fiction side, like you know, I, and I wrote about this in that one in that one essay I put out. But like, um, not every book has to be this like ripped from the headline contemporary take, you know. It you know allegorized into fiction. Like the thing of it is, like in terms of like writer responsibility, I guess where I kind of land with all this is like, it's imperative in a moment like this to write the authentic thing you're trying to write. You know. And that can, sound, um, that can sound kind of you know generic or self-evident, but it's really not because I think that one thing that happens is people start trying to, people try to write stories that aren't really the ones they feel because they're trying to go for a tie-in or they're trying to provide commentary on something that they don't necessarily know about or haven't grappled with fully yet. And I don't know, like to me, it's almost more brave to stay the course with whatever it is you're working on that you felt authentically, you know? Yeah. Like I think that we need that more than we need to like stare at a divide between this book is helpful and this one isn't, you know.
0: I was talking on Friday with a science fiction fantasy yeah. editor, yeah. and we were we were having a conversation. I think you overheard a little bit, Eric, uh, but we were having a conversation about how it's it's hard to remind ourselves why what we're doing matters. Yeah, you know, like why is this book about dragons? mattering in 2018 when you know there are toddlers being forced to show up in court by themselves right you know on the border and I think you know I I think there's a lot of reasons why one is of course like the the escapism and, and just treating yourself nicely and allowing readers to have content that they can recharge with and respond positively with and you know won't won't you know put them into a spiral of depression Mm -hmm. um but you also have to consider like fiction builds empathy so it doesn't matter like what your book is like just the very act of reading fiction as a human being is putting yourself in the shoes of somebody else right and that builds fiction so it doesn't matter what the story is yeah that makes you fundamentally a more empathetic person, which I think that in 2018, everybody can agree people need more of. Yep. I think there's also something to say about the the um, interplay that fiction allows between reader and author. And so a lot of the times when people are starting to write fiction, they are writing in response to something or mm. they are writing something that will help them sort out their own feelings about X, Y, Z. Um, and the writing process, a lot of the time, is a process of of clarification and distillation and healing or catharsis. And that's just the drafting stage. And then by the time all of the editing is done and all of, you know, the the book is published and, and it comes forth, a lot of that will have, like, that experience is still there, but Now there's room in the manuscript for the reader and there's room for the reader to go through a very similar process with reading it, you know, that empathy or, you know, processing their own thoughts or feelings about a particular topic or a particular relationship. Um, And that that like two way street and being able to engage with it at different times and different points and just acknowledging the fact that writing serves different purposes depending on what stage it's at and who is using it. Um, is really important. And so, you know, the the question is, like, do you have the duty, like, do you have, as a writer, a duty to address the local, national, or global issues? I think, in a lot of ways, the truth is you're already doing that. Yeah. And you should, your duty is to engage with those things in exactly the way that feels authentic and right to you that allows you to keep putting work forward as a writer and feeling good about yourself as a human being and that will then be edited and shaped into content that that will then be used in whatever way your readers are going to use it because you can't tell your readers how to use your work
1: yeah no i mean i think that um you know the thing with fiction is that you know all of us are just you know we're a set of our lived experiences you know And so to me, the key part of fiction is being able to offer something in a story that really only you can provide, Mm -hmm. you know, and that gets that gets coupled with this idea of, you know, the publishing timeline, right? Like this is not the same thing as um, people think of it as like people write these books, they write them really like frantically and, you know, quick. And then all of a sudden they, um, you know, they're ready to publish. And, you know, what happens, right? The book doesn't come out for another two years, and that long timeline it allows for more reflection i think almost by necessity it actually maybe even allowing for isn't the right term it's almost like Requires. It, it prevents the sort of knee jerk reaction to something that like say a you know a blog post or an online essay or any kind of like faster you know media platform might allow and so to me i see fiction as much less as having much less of a role in just like responding to the moment in real time like i think a lot of people kind of feel because the real moment feels so urgent but um, it's like the best thing you can do if you're if if we're talking specifically about like what to do with your fiction writing right now you know for me the best thing you can do is just to continue to think deeply about your own work in a way that still feels as true to it as possible without like totally adjusting course in things you know in a way that feels overt because one thing that will happen is you probably will adjust course in some way right these you know, life affects you and that, that effect changes how you write. And I would just say like, let that happen instead of trying to force it, you know, because it'll just come out in the work, you know, and you'll be inspired by different things or you'll be preoccupied with different things. And suddenly, you know, the book you thought you were going to write is something else. And then, um, I don't know, like it's less about trying to provide some sort of like function almost <laughs> like the, you know, the thing with this question is it sort of gets at the idea? of well, what's the use? Like, what role? You know, what role does fiction have right now?
0: What is its function? And
1: the answer to me is almost like its role is to simply try to disregard that even that framing, in a way that I think will be useful.
0: I like that. It feels very in spirit with the the overall idea that I definitely hold, which is you know, fiction is whatever the person using it wants it to be or needs it to be. You know, there's a lot of things that people can take out of the same work and, you know, read it as completely different. And that that usage feels feels very authentic to me in terms of what is the writer's responsibility?
1: Well, it's like a it's like full humanity in spite of, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like it it's like the best fiction works to present like a full-bodied human experience. Even when circumstances feel, like, pressing to make it into something shallower, you yeah. Know?
0: So, um, speaking of shallow things, <laughs> uh, we, we get down on Amazon a lot on this podcast, yeah. much like, uh most everybody in publishing yeah well we had another letter from a loyal listener this week
1: very who, good letter
0: yeah very very good letter um and this author she was originally published by harper collins um and then when it came time to place her new book her agent submitted to an amazon publishing imprint and they ended up working with amazon And she had a great experience. You know, she's making more money. She feels like her input matters. She Mm -hmm. feels like she's actually getting attention. Um, She's reaching more people because her books are are less expensive. All of this stuff is, I think you can, you know, very easily say is good for this particular author. And so her questions, and I'm just going to read it because it's a whole bunch of questions and it will... Mm -hmm. It'll it'll give us the framework that we need to as we as we work through all these ideas. Um, But she wrote this to us. Should I feel guilty as an author and lover of books and publishing for being so pro Amazon? Could their new controversial way of doing things just be the way of the future and not actually inherently evil? Isn't it a good thing if my books cost less but are read by and are more accessible to more people, especially if my royalties are higher and I'm making more money than I would if they were sold at a regular price in Barnes & Noble? And in that vein, and I know this isn't your problem, but aren't bookstores just kind of shooting themselves in the foot by making it so hard for Amazon authors to sell their books there? And why are they punishing authors for the sins of their publisher? And again, are these sins or just forward thinking?
1: So there's a lot in there. There is a lot um, in there. <laughs> no, and I think I, w- the thing with it is that all of that stuff is, it's really indicative and interesting and I think really true of this idea that, um, you know, an author could, and lots have, as as she indicates and as um, we simply know to be true, like, lots and lots of people go on Amazon and have a perfectly great experience publishing. And I guess, like, my first thing, like, in terms of, you know it's almost like what we were just talking about in terms of like what is the moral duty of the writer here like in this like big question of like Amazon versus big publishers um, and for me i guess my main starting point is that i don't think that given everything we know about the publishing industry given everything we know about who gets hit when the squeeze is on right authors like to me Saying that moral onus falls onto, you know, the author and the person trying to make the best decision for their own books. The idea that they would have to look at an Amazon opportunity, know that it could potentially, you know, be a better avenue for their work and their career. And then i will say, well, you know, but it's Amazon, so I shouldn't do it. Like, to me, that's unfair. And I think that this person and many who kind of choose this route are... I think that they're perfectly justified in going this route because I just have a hard time placing these sort of large structural forces that we kind of bat back and forth and say, you know, who should really be the ones fixing this are the authors when they're also (laughs) the ones getting like the most screwed. Like when, you know, publishing undergoes these sea changes, you know,
0: it's hard enough to get paid in this business as a creator. So you should take your money when we say we
1: say that all the time, right? Like publisher or writers should go get their money. Like it's. And so it kind of gets at this divide though. Like is it because it's not it's not um it's not wrong to publish with Amazon. No I, no one
0: Amazon the publishing imprints make very good books. Like the traditionally yeah. publishing the traditional publishing arm. They make very good books.
1: Yeah. Um that and like I honestly like you know people preach a lot hey you shouldn't buy on Amazon. You should go elsewhere. Go to your indie bookstore. Do all that kind of stuff. And all of that is true, but it's also not like It's also hard to actually, like, shame anyone for buying on Amazon because sometimes, obviously, it's often the cheapest. Often it's the most accessible. You know, like, there are lots of reasons why, you know, people who aren't, like, (laughs) out to, like, ruin books, you know, shop on Amazon instead. And, like, you can't really hold, you know, there's no problem there. And so we kind of run up in this question. And as you and I were batting this back and forth, um, we sort of ran into that question, right, which is, well where does the responsibility fall and what is that responsibility if we can say that authors are in the right for choosing the route that's best for them yep. and we're saying that consumers really can't be expected to do things that are less good for them you know in their purchasing decisions which i personally you know probably believe to be true um and but we also hold the belief that amazon is bad for publishing where like where is the disconnect you know like i think that that's what this question really kind of Um, you know, sharply pins us on a little bit, which is like, where is like, who needs to change their behavior if this thing is bad? And I guess maybe that's maybe that's where we should start. Like, so where do you start with that?
0: Well, okay, so who should change their behavior? I think it's reasonable to say that everybody should at least consider changing their behavior a little bit. So, you know, for for consumers who theoretically can afford to go shop at a more expensive independent bookstore and they Mm -hmm. have the mobility to do such a thing, um, you know, I think or, you know, they're just a consumer that really enjoys part of the the book purchasing process that involves a curated collection because there are physical shelves. They they like talking to people. They like going to um, industry events like that you know, maybe buying a couple books like that a year will make a difference. Whereas previously you were buying only on Amazon. I think that for writers, you know, like if you're only available on Amazon, then you're only available on Amazon. But if you are, you know, like if you're a writer whose books are available multiple places, you know, make sure to just give shout outs to your indie bookstores. And I think, I think... Um, the we we should make a make it clear here that indie bookstores when we when we talk about them this way or Barnes and Noble or bookstores in general are are valuable in two different ways here. Mm-hmm. I think that they are valuable for the publishing community in terms of their impact on um, larger trends and taste in canon, like creating the canon. Um, because I, you know, like I would love a really smart person to recommend a book and, you know, single handedly sell a hundred copies in a particular region that starts a little bit of a snowball effect than just like rely on a popularity contest that will just, you know, make James Patterson sell more books, um. So if you care about that curation and you care about that community and that person to person thing. And the second reason that they're important is just simply because like indie bookstores are keeping Amazon from being a monopoly. And, you know, it is in many ways very, very true that Amazon is doing really good things for authors and they're doing really good things for accessibility and discoverability and all of that is great. Um, But what I think is inevitable is that if Amazon becomes the only the only bookseller on the market or the only one that truly, truly matters, then as soon as they don't have to sell their books for cheaper or give higher royalty rates to attract good authors, like as soon as they don't have to do that, as soon as they have the monopoly on the market and everybody else is just too invested and they can't get away, all of that is going to go away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you kind of make this point about, um, because to me it's even broader than You know, just book selling. It's about that kind of integration of the entire process, right? Like you've got, um, you know, the. I mean, now we're talking about Amazon, not just as a bookseller. We're not. We're not like having a debate entirely about is it okay to buy on Amazon. We're having a different debate now, which is it okay is it okay to publish on Amazon? Yeah. And it sort of gets at this idea of you know you mentioned curation, right? And I think that that is a key part of this broader idea of like thinking of the book world and the book landscape, particularly like, you know, if you're someone working in this country, sort of the American, you know, book world, you know, whether that's, um, you know, things getting published or what kind of authors you like to see or what you think is important literature or what sort of, you know, things you're interested in, anything that gets beyond the idea of the, of a book as just a raw product, um, that's where your vested interest comes in because it's like... All of the places that are on Amazon are the places that are going to do the things like, hey, we're going to really make some effort to, you know, curate in ways that, you know, where representation matters. Or, hey, you know, this this particular writer needs to be shown to people, you know, even if they're not profitable right away. Like, there's all kinds of decisions. And this, I mean, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, art versus business, you know, in the book world and how it's oftentimes the book behaves like in, you know, like an arts project as opposed to a business, and but like some of that stuff, it I really think it matters. You know the things where you take the loss on the the prestige book, you know because you know that you know someone needs to read it, or you know you, the way that you kind of make decisions because something just feels artistically important, or any of the other sort of gambles that don't necessarily make raw, um, you know consumer based sense um, in book publishing, which is all the time. Um, those decisions become weaker and weaker and weaker and harder to make. The more um, Amazon gains influence, I think. And like, so the question of you know whether it's good that you know like this idea here at the bo- of the bottom of this email, where maybe this is just the future way of doing things. And I think, I mean, to be honest, it probably is the future way of doing things. Like, it's really it's going to be really hard to stop Amazon from basically doing whatever they want. Yeah, moving that's forward true. because they're I mean one because they're able to you know, operate their book arm basically at a loss because they can subsidize it with other bits. And that's sort of how they got to where they are. They can make everything cheap. They can do things, you know, really efficiently because they don't need to make money off books in the way a book publisher does. And so what happens with that, though, is that the it squeezes everybody else and it makes the choices that I think really make book publishing what it is, which is something bigger than the buying and like the production of a, you know, rectangle of paper, you know, and selling that paper to people who want to pay for it. Um anything that elevates book publishing past that becomes much more difficult the more um the more Amazon dominates the landscape. And that's kind of where um you know where I get itchy, I guess is maybe the way to put it. Yeah. But like I don't know, but that, that doesn't really even answer the idea, you know, that Like An author isn't behaving poorly here. The consumer isn't really behaving poorly here. It's more just like publishing itself has to just kind of make structural decisions or it's going to have to start doing things that say we have this thing that's worth preserving and it's going to have to happen in a way that doesn't rely on this behemoth because otherwise that behemoth is going to strip it away. You know. I think
0: it's fair to say that, um, you know, as much as we might characterize Amazon as inherently evil, like they're just making really smart business decisions. Well, they're for, treating... Yeah, because they're, cause they're treating the books like, like toasters instead of like art. Right. Which, you know, we, we get on publishing all the time for making dumb business decisions. But like sometimes you have to make dumb business decisions. And I think that it is... The reason that people get so down on on Amazon in a lot of ways is because it's really scary to see the future where that um, that option of choosing between, like, art and business, like, seeing that go away. You know, if Amazon yeah. becomes the only retailer of books... Um, or the only producer. Or the, the only, only, or, like, or the only producer detail, or, yeah. or something... You know, that that will significantly change the landscape in a way that might be good in a lot of ways. But it also means that, you know, if and when, you know, Amazon decides that they're not going to take a loss anymore, they'll maybe change their royalty rates for for the for the for the writers and they'll raise prices for the consumers. And at the end, they're going to go home with really, really big checks because one thing that we do know is that Amazon does not care about individuals. They, you know, like even just think about like the people who work at their warehouses. Yep. Like there's article after article and lawsuit after lawsuit of them treating human beings that work for them horribly. And I think they that right now... treat them as
1: commodities, just like they're treating exactly. books as commodities. They take away everything that makes something beyond just a, you know, good or a, you know, means of production and turns it into you know and just flattens it into something that you know exists as a line on a spreadsheet and i think that we all want the book world to be more than that And and so
0: where i'm like yeah where i come down on is right now no it is it is perfectly fine and good to have a great wonderful experience and love amazon for being your for being your publisher um but you don't want that to be the only way that people go. And everything else we say, you know, in terms of supporting your indie bookstore and going to the library and doing all of this, it's it's twofold. It's because we think that those institutions are valuable, but we also think that those institutions are keeping Amazon from making publishing into a, a you know, non-artsy hellscape.
1: <laughs> you know something, I'm... I don't know why I'm thinking about this right now, but um, someone, I think, online at one point kind of pointed out that if presented today, if we did, if these things didn't exist, if presented today, the idea of the library would be decried as like socialist nonsense that would never be allowed to exist under any circumstances. Yeah, sure. it it, because it exists and because it already kind of you know we fit it in and people now self-evidently love the library right but like I feel like the elevator pitch for the library simply wouldn't fly in today (laughs) you know you know what I'm saying like if you said well there's going to be this place and no it doesn't really buy or sell anything you sort of just go there and you take the good and then you bring it back after a while and no there's never really any money that changes hands like it wouldn't it would it would people would scratch their heads right and I wonder um if there's something i mean it almost sounds weird but i wonder if there's almost something coming in you know in terms of like book publishing in that same vein this is obviously like a half formed thought but like you know the reason libraries still exist and are good is because people you know people showed up and supported those institutions right even as you know other places you know offered you know better options and you could own the good and you could do all these things and um you know you didn't have to you know pay tax dollars for these things and um it's just like showing up and supporting institutions to the point that they just become self-evidently good in a community whether that's an indie bookstore or a library or things like that even when it doesn't quite make business sense it ends up having lasting roots and effects in ways that i think really end up mattering as like a pillar in these sorts of arts communities you know like It sounds silly, but I do think it is like important to fight tooth and nail for these kind of small things. Like it can feel so hopelessly small to say, I'm going to go buy the one book I was thinking of buying at a bookstore instead of on Amazon. Like that is a absolutely that, you know, you could do that a thousand times and not even hit a rounding error, you know, (laughs) in this equation, you know what I'm saying? But like, there's something beyond that, that I think really matters just in the way We choose as an industry and a community, as an arts community to operate like who you know, who are we is the question. Yeah. And I like to think that we are a community of people that values editorial curation, that values the apparatus that shows us you know, who the authors are that don't quite make sense yet, but might sometime.
0: Believes you know, that reading is not an inherently like individual and completely solo process.
1: Exactly. Or that reading is even a worthwhile thing. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you we've you know, how much of the last 30 years have been just a revolved around like commodifying every single second of your day into, you know, working from home and working out of your car on your third, you know, your third job and, you know, doing all these things where you can just take every spare second and use it as a means of, you know, getting some last little bit of income like even the idea of reading feels like it doesn't even make sense you know what i mean and i it's... had to
0: wait until my power went out to read a book eric
1: <laughs> yeah no i mean it's just the point is like this stuff doesn't on a big scale or on, i guess maybe let me rephrase that on a little scale there's no real choice here like if you're trying to have a career and you're trying to make you know decisions that are good for you and you're um you know in your business i really i from like very very honestly i think that you can't fault any author for choosing to publish with amazon i really no. don't because it's I the would right
0: submit a book as an agent to amazon yeah. if it was a good choice for my because author.
1: It, because it's the right it's sometimes it's the right thing for that person who's just trying to make it like the rest of us are you know and you can't put that you know division on them but i just like i just think like broadly um I think that we all want books to be something more than just, you know, the bottom line of a and l And it's, if, if we're going to think like that, then someone and probably, you know, I think that the moral onus ends up with bigger stakeholders. Um, and it's, you know, that that person isn't isn't the author, you know, and as I as I think about it, it's almost like, you know who we never ask you know who we never talk about behaving more ethically in this situation and we never talk about like well you know whose responsibility is it to like you know make sure the book world no one ever says amazon (laughs) yeah, because we've just like treated we've just like because they're not gonna because they're not gonna and it's like just assumed and like they're just they've like by treating them as such a straightforward antagonist we've actually like flattened them out of their own moral responsibility if that makes sense yeah and so maybe there's work to be done there but
0: and i think that there is something good like clearly this author is having really great experiences with real individual people who really care about their books and they're still able to engage with their their audience in that way and like all of that is good like there are people who work at Amazon particularly in the publishing division who care and I think the big problem is and I think it gets back to a little something that we didn't quite touch on yet but um like, Amazon as the behemoth, like, the, there's a reason Amazon has a publishing arm and a self-publishing arm and, you know, has the has the store and the distribution and the Kindle and subscriptions and all of that. And it's because they're trying to become a, mon- a monopoly. Like, that's just what's going to happen. But I think that there is, like, it is, again, you know, removing Amazon from any sort of, like, by characterizing them as big and horrible and evil, we are like forfeiting the ability to pull all of those different areas out. And like booksellers just refusing to sell a book that's published by an Amazon imprint means that they are not giving options to readers, you know, like just because Amazon has a publishing arm and Amazon is competing with you for the books doesn't mean that like, like by by purchasing products from Amazon and and stocking them and and engaging with them specifically as publishers that that wouldn't maybe force them to separate those those areas out like we're forcing them to be a monopoly we're forcing them to you know close us out of the loop yeah which you know like I, and, you know, I think it's going to continue happening, and I do think in many ways it is, like, the way of the future, right? Like, there's this idea that, you know, if one thing can do everything for you, then it's better than three things that can do three things for you. Um,
1: there's one part of this email that really jumps out at me, and I do think this is um, a really prescient point. Um, and it says here, you know, why, you know, why do authors get punished for the sins of the publisher? Right. And it's this idea that, um, you know, publisher can screw up like, you know, she, you know, she talks here, she had a, you know, less than stellar experience at a traditional house and went elsewhere. And it was great. So like, why, you know, why is that on her and not the publisher who treated her poorly? And the answer is that it absolutely shouldn't be. And too often, whether it's in terms of who's getting paid, or, you know, who's getting squeezed, or, you know, who is being treated as the most, you know, essential part of the equation, the author always ends up having to answer for the sins of the publisher. And it's really deeply unfair. And it's something that definitely needs to change. And this is totally separate from, you know, Amazon. And I hope, like, as we talk about this stuff, like, one thing I really hope comes through is that when we talk about the larger publishing landscape... Amazon isn't the only party we think needs to like do better. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, lots t- of people need like, to do better. <laughs> it's you know, big traditional publishers. You know, part of the m- reason that we're here is because they created this mess themselves. You know, and um, you know, I mean, there's reports all the time that even when you know publishers make more money, it doesn't mean authors get paid more. Or you know, whenever these um, you know these abuse things happen, you know, who ends up having to leave the industry? It's the authors, not anyone who's entrenched in the industry. Um, you know it's that to me is part of a much larger pattern and i think that we have to at some point just say you know authors in terms of the larger structural problems with publishing we can't ask the people we also treat as the most disposable to hold the most moral responsibility like to me that's absurd and that needs to be pushed back against too so that's less like an amazon issue and more just like publishing treats its authors like shit by giving them the worst stake in the deal and also making them the most public-facing figures. And I don't know. I, I think that that is a major problem as well, And all, which is to say all the more reason to, like, if you can get a better deal somewhere else, I mean, you should do it because it's, you know, why should you be the one to take the loss for the greater good, you know?
0: So we talked about a lot of big ideas and big <laughs> concepts in this yeah. episode today. Um, and so I wanted to... Um, Extend that a little bit into a pub tip and then give you something very, very concrete and small, but would make a big difference as you are a querying writer um, or, or just a writer who's working in general. Um, I think a lot of the time with agents that are especially, you know, publicly facing, at least in the in the writing and publishing community, you know they're on social media. They go to events. They write blogs. They write articles. They have podcasts. Um, mm. They're very they're very forward facing. I think it becomes very very easy, you know, once you read, you know, a thousand tweets from somebody to feel in a lot of ways like you know them, um, and so in a lot of ways, you know, you you sometimes do. However, there's a lot when you are trying to enter into a formal relationship with somebody or you're having formal correspondence as as people working or trying to work together. Um, that is that is very, very formal. And I think it's important, you know, as as, you know, we all become more and more like incestuous, what with our with our thoughts and on and and Twitter and all of that. Um, I think it's important to draw those boundaries just as a signal of respect. Mm. So, like, for example, when you're querying somebody, even if, you know, you follow them and sometimes respond to them on social media, like, it's definitely worthwhile addressing them as, you know, Mr., Ms., Mix, you know, and their last name, or just calling them by their full name, Um, rather than just saying, hey, Laura, like, here's a query, da-da-da. I would
1: say over-familiarity is worse than being... Too you know, formal business. You know, business appropriate. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I don't. I don't know about you, Eric, but like <clears throat> when I am like when I when I get that query letter and then I decide to request pages you know I sign it Laura and that's kind of like the signal that like I am perfectly happy for you to start calling me Laura but that's you know that's after we've both established through you know like because all we have at this point is writing we have like 300 words Uh where we are establishing that you know this is business and at that point you know we can we can start getting a little bit more familiar but you know it's it's just a tiny little thing
1: it's a work email but it's a work email
0: it's a work email it's totally work exactly. email you know don't have any emojis don't you know yeah. yeah don't don't you know just call me like zatsy. like that wouldn't be <laughs> ideal um you know if you can spell my name right um but you know really it's it's just as simple as as a Ms. mister mix or just even a full name um, because, you know, we need more boundaries in this 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 ridiculous business. So, um, so that is your pub tip.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. Remember to stay tuned um, over the next couple of weeks. We got a lot of fun extras coming at you, but don't tune in next week because we're not going to be here. So you're just going to keep refreshing and be really sad. <laughs> so <laughs> oh man, bleak. I know. You're going to you're going to miss me so much, Eric.
1: Yeah. It's going to be horrible.
0: <laughs> All right. We will see you for a regular episode in 2 weeks.
1: Bye.